invite you to open up your Bibles to Matthew chapter 4. Matthew chapter 4. I'm going to read a passage, just a couple of verses there in just a moment. But it's good to see everyone out this morning. It's uh, finally cooler than it has been, and uh, some of the heat advisories have kind of faded away. But it's good to see everyone, uh, whether cool or, or warm, good to be with God's family, be able to worship him as what was prayed a moment ago with, with the liberties that we have, with the ease that we have, the accessibility. It's something that we should never take for granted that God has blessed us with to be able to so easily obey him, to so easily serve him and worship him. And really with that in mind, that's where I want to focus on as we go into Matthew chapter four. In Matthew chapter four, what we find is really Jesus being tempted by the devil in a couple different ways, but all throughout the temptations, it's just building up and building up of the devil's temptations. And really what you find, I think, is a more emphatic rejection of those temptations from Jesus. And while this final temptation in the wilderness is the most egregious, as we're going to see that Satan tries to tempt Jesus with, Jesus' response is, I would say, the more firm and more emphatic and it's righteously indignant and so let's just read what jesus has to say as satan tries to tempt him yet again in matthew chapter 4 beginning in verse 8 it says again the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in their glory and he said to him all these things i will give you if you fall down and worship me in verse 10 jesus said to him Go, Satan, for it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Then the devil left him, and behold, angels came and began to minister to him. Now, as you look at that answer that Jesus gives, I think it is, as, as I said a moment ago, the most resolved, the most emphatic, the most firm uh, answer out of all. Every single time Jesus would respond with, thus says the Lord, it is written, and he would quote the scriptures. And I think that's the perfect way to resist temptation. But I love the way that this ends. The devil leaves when Jesus finally says, go. And, and I, I go through all that just to say, I think that like Jesus makes his position very clear, we need to learn how to make ours just as clear when we are tempted by the devil. And when we are uh, struggling and tired through the wilderness, we need to get to the same point where we very firmly, not just kind of, uh, would you please go? A firm answer, leave. Because I am not going to do what you say. I am not going to sin against my God. I want to get to the point that Jesus could get to, even when he is struggling so much. Uh, physically as he would have been fasting very thirsty and 40 days and nights in the wilderness we all would be so if we learn anything from this we want to have that same kind of answer and so two things that I want to talk about this morning and the first is that I think the devil all the while is trying to convince Jesus that that he has the better offer to give to him other than God and that's where I want to start. And, and then when, what we'll end with is what I think Jesus makes clear, that regardless of the earthly consequences, he's already on the better path. But even though he is on the better path and he knows it, what does the devil try to do? He's still trying to say, but trust me, I, I think I have an offer that you just would be a fool to refuse. And so what are a couple things, just three things that I want to mention as, as, as we look at this specific temptation, the last temptation in the wilderness of Matthew chapter 4. And first of all, Satan is trying to offer Jesus the same results or the same conclusion that God is, but through another path that is not God's. 
So, so the, the devil is trying to tell Jesus, listen, I, I, know what your, I know what your goal is. I can get you there. But it's just going to be through another path that, that the Father has not given to you. Now, there's a lot wrong with this. And, and first of all, what we need to understand is that Satan does have the ability, frankly, to offer different paths. He has the op opportunity and he has the capability to offer many different paths other than God's. And, and sometimes I think people look at that and they think, well, then where's the sovereignty of God? You look over at John chapter 12, John chapter 12, Jesus himself will make this very clear that, that there is some level of, of authority to a degree or some level of dominion, I guess, uh, that the devil has. But look at how it's always described. Whenever uh, Jesus talks about this or God talks about this, John 12 and verse 31, it says, now judgment is upon this world. Now the ruler of this world will be cast out. And I, if I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all men to myself. So as he talks, he's speaking of the devil when he says the ruler of this world. And really, what is he talking about? The, the, the ruler of the sons of disobedience, the domain of darkness. But even as he, even as he uh, not concedes, but even as he reveals that this is a fact, this is the reality of this world, that does not mean that the devil has total sovereignty. It doesn't even mean that he's in control. It just means that he has followers. But look at the word that's used in verse 31. It doesn't say that he's the ruler of this world and there's not, and there's not really anything that's going to be done about it. But he says judgment is upon this world. And so from the very beginning what we find is that there is a judgment coming on the devil and on those who serve him. Over in Ephesians chapter 2 very quickly. Ephesians chapter 2. Look here how it's described. Another path that, that the devil has the ability to offer. But look all throughout the New Testament how it is uh, portrayed. In verse one of Ephesians chapter two, it says, and you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. Among them, we too all formerly lived in the lusts of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. But God being rich in mercy, because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ. Now, uh, we'll stop there. I know it's kind of in the middle of a sentence, but I, I really just want to focus on the contrast. We know, what we've, we know that God has saved us if we have obeyed him. But at the very beginning, the first three verses, how is the path, any path that the devil offers described? It's described as dead. It's described in terms of a trespass, of sins, darkness, disobedience. So it's very clear. Satan does have the ability to offer a different path, but it is only ever the path of rebellion. And we need to understand that because he doesn't try to, he, he, he doesn't necessarily just let that out as he's trying to tempt people. He doesn't say, hey, I want you to go in full out rebellion against God. No, he's more subtle. And that's the problem with temptations. Notice that this is the same tactic that he used even with Eve. Back in Genesis chapter 3. If you want to turn there very quickly. Genesis chapter 3. In the very first sin. The first temptation. In verse 4. He's speaking to Eve. About how God has given them a commandment. Not to eat of the fruit of the tree of good. And, uh, uh, the knowledge of good and evil. In verse 4 it says. The serpent said to the woman. You will not surely die. And that's just an outright lie. But he says, you surely will not die in verse five. For God knows that in the day you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. 
Question. As you look at those verses in Genesis chapter 3, did Eve not already have this, op, uh, this ability to, to discern between good and evil? I would say yes. How? Through God. They already had everything they needed. Adam and Eve knew the difference between good and evil. And why? Because of their relationship with God. God was the one that was telling them the whole while. In fact, in the commandment, that much is clear. He was giving them the ability to discern between good and evil. But what does the devil do? He tries to come in and muddy the waters and say, he doesn't want you to have that. And what, what happens? They forget that blessing that they already have in Jesus, or they already had in God. And I think that this is a consistent temptation of the devil. Likewise, he wants us to forget that we already have what we need in God. Oh, God just wants to deprive you, even though he's already giving them what they needed and what, and what she thought she wanted. And he starts out with a lie just to get into kind of a half-truth. They already had that ability to discern between good and evil through their relationship and their ability to, to speak with the Father. But they wanted it for themselves. And so the temptation was, take it for yourselves. And the devil succeeds in that temptation. Now, with that being said, he does, he does offer alternative paths, but every single one is a path of rebellion. I would, I would add to this that the way he makes it even more subtle is his reasoning is that his way is better. It's going to be more beneficial. It's going to be more practical than God's way. It's going to be more practical than walking down God's path. Go over to Mark chapter 8. Mark chapter 8. This is a striking passage of, of, what, uh, of what temptations tend to, how temptations tend to come our way. Mark chapter 8 and verse 31. Notice who's speaking. It is the disciples and Jesus. And Peter doesn't like what Jesus has to say here. In verse 31 of Mark chapter 8, it says, And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. He was stating the matter plainly. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Let me just stop there and say, I don't ever think that we should ever be so bold or confident as to start rebuking God. But in verse 33, as Peter's doing this, turning around and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on God's interests, but man's. Wait, when, when did Satan enter the, the scene here? I don't remember Satan ever coming to Jesus very plainly like he did in Matthew chapter 4. He didn't. But what was Satan doing? He was trying to use those that were closest to Jesus, the more intimate relationships, to try and Maybe confuse him. Maybe uh, get him to start thinking. Through Peter, what is, what is the devil trying to say? What is he trying to offer? Listen, you don't have to suffer now. You're a prince. Jesus knew he was a prince. You don't have to suffer now. You can, you can send legions of angels upon this earth and take dominion. Jesus knew that too. But the devil comes in and says, I, I mean, this is tr th these are truths. I know that you need to have dominion over this world. I know that's why you came. I can give that to you without the suffering. Don't wait. Have the dominion you've been working so hard for this whole time right now. And you can even get away with, with it without the cross. Now, the problem was God had already set Jesus on a path, a specific path. And that path was going through the cross. Just as Jesus was describing here and teaching his close friends, his disciples. Peter doesn't like that. And I think, we can, I think we can kind of relate with Peter as he's hearing this. This is the son of the living God, and he's saying he's going to die, that he must die. 
what would be your reaction? No, please don't say this. But Peter goes too far. He begins rebuking Jesus. I think he takes the bait that Jesus gave. And, and so he starts rebuking Jesus. But look how subtle the, 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 that Satan's tactic is. He uses those around us. Now, don't think that the devil doesn't do this today. And I would say, especially with young people. I, I, well, at least I think one of the main applications is, is more clear with young people. You think about how we, at least we should be stressing evangelism. Not just for young people, but for all people. But when young people, as they get into middle school, high school, college especially, they're going to have a lot of peers around them that are not living the same way they are. But our goal is to evangelize. It's to reach out. One of the most atrocious, egregious, and disgusting temptations that I've heard in a few years, and, and I think through the same tactic, through some Christians. And they don't realize that this is a temptation, but what, what are some things that people say as we are supposed to be evangelizing? They say, listen, I know what these people are doing. I, I know that it's wrong. I know that they're engaging in sin. And they're engaging in things that we should not be associated with. But think about how much impact you can have on these people if you just join them. Think about how much you could do for these people if you just engaged with them in the midst of these kinds of sins. Now, even then, I don't think it's that direct, but people say things like this. You're never going to reach those people if you don't step into their realm. First of all, I think that's a gross misinterpretation of what Jesus ever did. When you see Jesus come into contact with broken people, with sinners, with unclean people, he was, what, where, where did the change occur? Jesus was not made unclean. They were made clean when they touched him. And it's supposed to be the same with us. We're not, people try to describe Jesus as getting down in the mud and the muck and, and getting dirty to save people. That's not what Jesus did. He lifted them out of it and cleansed them. He didn't join them in the dirtiness. He didn't join them in the uncleanness. He saved them from it. He delivered them from it. We cannot think that, we cannot be so bold and so confident of ourselves to think that we can do better than Jesus. That you know what, we just need to step into it with them. And yes, they're going to engage in some things that God has said we should not be a part of. But you know what, this is the only way that they're, no, it's not the only way. That's the devil talking. So don't think that, that just because, you know, all of the peers around us, whether it be in school or out of school, all the people that we're trying to, to evangelize to and bring the gospel into their lives, don't think that just because you are the outlier, don't think because you're the outsider, that the only way that they're going to listen is you have to be normalized through their standards. No, in fact, it is Jesus who is the ostracized. It's Jesus who is this, who, who is this rube from Nazareth? Who is, this, who is this outsider who's coming in and telling us how we need to live? We need to be just like that. We don't become unclean like the rest. And even though that may look deceptively better, that path, rest assured, it is far worse than we can ever see. And, and, and that is a part of the temptation, blinding us, distracting us from what we're actually doing. We're blinded because we think this is a good thing. That's what he wants us to think. Look at what we may be able to accomplish. How many denominations do that today? Look at how many people we can bring in if we just change God's mandate on worship. You know, maybe there are some noble, uh, maybe there's some noble thoughts that considerations that go into this. We, I just really want to save people. You don't save people. God does. And don't start changing things thinking that you're going to be the one to save people. And so this is what the devil does. He, he offers alternate paths. He tries to act like this is the better path. It's more practical. But finally, I would say he, all the while, and this kind of goes into what we were just talking about, he tries to downplay the cost of this alternate path. 
he tries to act like it's going to be the same conclusion that God wanted you to come to, but in the end, it costs everything. The price is too much to pay, for us to pay. In fact, when you look at Jesus back in Matthew chapter 4, it would have cost literally everything. Now, how is that? Why is that? Because Jesus, if he had given in to this temptation, and what is the temptation? You need to bow down and worship me. Again, I said it ends with the most egregious, just out, plainly spoken uh, temptation. But what would he have been giving up had he done so? He would have been giving up his authority, his purity, his perfection, his holiness, his victory. If he had bowed down and worshipped Satan just so that way he could have dominion over this world, it would have just been Satan's dominion still. Because who's bowing to who? Jesus, of course, didn't do that. Jesus was to be given dominion, but not by these means. As we already read in Hebrews chapter 5, and verses 8 through 10 in the, in the adult Bible class, it was a cross that Jesus was to become, through which was to become a king. In Philippians chapter 2, Philippians chapter 2 and verse 8. Philippians chapter 2 and verse 8. It says, being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. For this reason also, God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth. Now, what was the devil trying to do? He was trying to get him to forget that Jesus... He was going to accomplish this. This was not a question. Jesus is going to accomplish this. He already essentially has the victory. He's walking steadily towards the cross and he will beat death. He will beat Satan. But the devil all the while is trying to say, I, I, you know, if you really want this, do it my way. Or maybe just trying to blind him and say, is this really the path you want to take? Trying to forget the end, trying to forget the conclusion that God wants him to come to. Verse 11 of Philippians chapter 2. Every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of, of God the Father. This was supposed to come through the cross. Now, when it comes to the application that we're supposed to make from that, which we will in just a moment, I think that's one of the reasons the temptation is so strong. We don't like the fact that sometimes we do have to go through the cross. But we'll come back to that in just a moment. But I would just say, looking at what would have been lost here in Matthew chapter 4, let this be a warning to all of us that even a small act it's just a small little thing that, that I'm going to do. It's, it's not going to be devastating. It can have devastating effects. It can have devastating consequences. He wouldn't have been our perfect high priest. He wouldn't have been that perfect offering that would have cleansed us, taken away the death, the penalty of death that we had accrued on ourselves. Thinking back to Genesis chapter 3, Adam and Eve, they got what they wanted, didn't they? They did. They were able to discern when they ate of the fruit, they were able to discern good and evil. They brought it on themselves. But look at what they lost. No longer could they walk in the garden with God. No longer could they have that beautiful, un, uncorrupted, perfect relationship with God. Now they've lost it. Now they can no longer be in they, They're pushed out. Why? Because they have corrupted themselves. They have broken that image bearer uh, creation that they were supposed to be. They'd broken themselves. And so they lose everything. Now, this is how harmful it is when we choose another path over the one that God has already given to us. Acts chapter 2 and verse 38. What does Peter tell the people? Repent and be baptized, every one of you, for the forgiveness of sins. 
Now, we know what the command is, but, but what, is, what does the devil come in and try to say? Think about what you'll gain if you just stop focusing so much on that. Oh, we're going to gain a lot more members. We're, we're actually going to probably fill these pews to the point we're going to have to make some additions on the building. We may have to get a new building, a bigger building to fit all these new members. That's what we've gained, but what have we lost? We lost New Testament church. We've lost Christ's church. In Ephesians chapter 5 and verse 21, Paul says that we are supposed to submit to one another. Submit to your brethren. Well, the devil comes in and says, no, you don't need to do that. Guess what? If we go with the devil's path, what do we gain? I gain my preference. And I gain what I like most and what I want. Me, myself, and I. What have we lost? Fellowship with God and our brethren. Because you've injured Jesus by hurting your brethren. Ecclesiastes chapter 12 and verse 1 and several other passages like it. Remember your creator in the days of your youth. This is what every single parent, every single older brother and sister in Christ should be striving to do for their younger brothers and sisters in Christ. Every parent should be doing for their children. Making sure that we focus on our kids remembering the creator in the days of their youth. Devil says, you don't need to do that. Well, you know what? If we go on that, what do we gain? What do they gain? They gain more sports time on the field. And you know what? They even might, they might even be able to uh, we might be able to, to accrue some more money because instead of focusing on going to the assemblies, I'm focusing on getting that overtime money so that way I can take them on more vacations. And you know what? They're going to love this. That's what they've gained. They have gained something. What have they lost? A relationship with God. And when, as they get older, an independent relationship with God. And by that, I don't, mean in, I don't mean independent in like a rebellious way. I mean independent in the fact that they're not just riding on the coattails of your faith. They have a strong conviction. And the list could just go on and on and on and on. Though Satan disguises the end result as the same as God's goal, it is only ever going to result in the opposite. So let's not fall for the devil's trick here saying, I promise you, this is going to be a better path. It may be more pleasurable, but it is only going to end with death, destruction, devastation, oblivion. It's going to end with hell. Now, that is the offer that the devil tries to give. What does Jesus say he's going to take? What does he say he would rather take? In, in John chapter 14 and verse 6, what does it say? I am the way, the truth, the life. What's the better path? The path that I'm already on, Satan. What's the better path? It's the path that God has put me on. It's the path that God has set before me. And in fact, when you think in those terms, it is, it is the only path worth taking over in Matthew chapter 7 verse 13 Matthew chapter 7 in verse 13 he says enter through the narrow gate for the gate is wide and the way is broad that leads to destruction and there are many who enter through it for the gate is small and the way is narrow that leads to life and there are few who find it we were actually uh, I, me and a, a couple other people were talking about this passage just a couple days ago in a study about the fact that there is one path there is one way to heaven one way to salvation. It is a narrow path. There are restrictions. There are prohibitions. Everybody always likes to focus on those prohibitions and those restrictions. Well, you know what? The, the way to destruction, the way that doesn't get you to life, is very broad. And when you look at the, the, the broad way, the broad gate, what is it that leads you there? Instead of taking God's path on his mandate of worship, well, I think I'm going to take my own. Instead of taking God's path, as we were talking about just a moment ago, on salvation, I think I'm just going to, I think I'm going to fudge the details a little bit. Hey, we can take that path, but it's, it's like stepping, it's like looking across a great chasm. 
and, and seeing on the other side the gates to heaven and you see a bridge right in front of you and instead of taking that, yes, narrow bridge because you want so badly something that God has said you can't have, what am I going to do? I'm going to jump right in the chasm. Now, when you, look, when you think about it that way, we're like, of course I wouldn't do that. But, but we do. We do it all the time. And why? Because we've allowed the, the, the devil to distract us. We've allowed the devil to make us think, well, you know what? I'm actually, st I'm not stepping into just thin air here. I'm stepping on solid ground. What we're doing is stepping in, into sinking sand. And so that's why, as you look at these passages, that's why we can be sure that any path the devil offers, it will lead us astray. So then, with that being said, should we not be all the more diligent and resolved to stick to this one path? Though we will be ridiculed, we will be made fun of, we will be ostracized. That's a promise. People don't like not knowing what's going to happen. You can guarantee this is going to happen. Are you glad you have the promise? <laughs> you glad you have the guarantee? I'll tell you, I am. I'm glad that God is honest with us and tells us what's going to happen because he's, he wants us to know what we're getting into. And he wants us to know that even with all of that, it will be worth it. So don't let these people take you onto a path that's not mine because that's not going to get you to life. That's not going to get you to salvation. And so the better path is God's path. And the better path also is a primary love for God over all else. In fact, this is one of the reasons that uh, we, we went through that lesson last week about talking about the primary commandment. I think it's so incredibly important that we develop a love for God over all else. That is what Jesus displayed in Matthew chapter 4 and verse 10. Go. You, there's no need for you to be here. I am not following you. I'm not going after what you say. Why? Because I don't care about you. I love God more than anything and anyone. So I'm not going to go with you. And in Deuteronomy chapter 10, very quickly, Deuteronomy chapter 10 and verse 20. You might just stay in Deuteronomy because this is where Jesus is quoting from. But Deuteronomy chapter 10 and verse 20. Look at how this describes the kind of love that we should have. You shall fear the Lord your God. You shall serve him and cling to him and you shall swear by his name. Just the thought of clinging to someone. What, is that, what does that describe? Verse 21, he is your praise and he is your God who has done these great and awesome things for you which your eyes have seen. Your fathers went down to Egypt, 70 persons in all, and now the Lord your God has made you as numerous as the stars of heaven. You shall therefore love the Lord your God and always keep his charge, his statutes, his ordinances, and his commandments. So from the very beginning, this has always been the expectation. It's always been the command. This is what's needed because if we don't have this kind of love, we will fail. There's another guarantee. If you don't love him, you will fall. You will fall every time for the temptations that the devil tries to throw at us. So if this is the case, what does this re reveal about this climactic temptation here? What, do, what, is it so, what does it sum up to? Well, the temptations ultimately, I think, culminate at idolatry. And what Jesus shows us is this is what we must overcome ultimately. Over in Deuteronomy chapter 6, this is what he's quoting from. Deuteronomy chapter 6 and verse 13. He says, you shall fear only the Lord your God. And you shall worship him and swear by his name. You shall not follow other gods, any of the gods of the peoples who surround you. For the Lord your God in the midst of you is a jealous God. Otherwise, the anger of the Lord your God will be kindled against you and he will wipe you off the face of the earth. That, again, that's pretty clear. And you even have some judgment language in there. But, but all of it goes together and is balanced with not just be, weird, be, be fearful of the judgment, but be aware of the love that you should have for God. 
that he is your praise, that he is your utmost concern, that he is the only one that you should fear, no one else. Now, I think this is just far too easy. How easy is this? Look over at Colossians chapter 3. Colossians chapter 3. How easy is it to commit idolatry? There are no statues of Baal. There are no statues, uh, you know, in the shops that we're walking into, in our homes that we're bowing down. At least, <laughs> I don't know of any. If you are, well, there's another conversation we need to have after services. But, but there, we don't have these physical rep- representations, these statues that everyone bows to. But look at what Paul says in Colossians chapter 3 and verse 5. Therefore, consider the members of your earthly body as dead to immorality, to impurity, to passion, to evil desire, and to greed, which amounts to idolatry. Now, I thought idolatry was just bowing to statues. No. In fact, it's as subtle as just putting yourself before God. In Mark chapter 8 and verse 33, remember what Jesus said to Peter? Get behind me, Satan, as he's talking to Peter. What was Peter doing? He was putting man's interests in front of God's interests. That may be a good verse to highlight. That's idolatry. When we decide, you know what, I know what the Bible says, but I think I, I, think I like this better. It's exactly what Adam and Eve did in Genesis chapter 3. It's choosing our way instead of God's way. I, I don't see anything wrong with this. Even though the Bible prohibits this, I don't see anything wrong with it. What am I doing? I'm becoming my own God. I'm, I make the standard. I know that the Bible says this about you know X, Y, or Z, but honestly, I think it's fine. What am I doing? I'm becoming my own God. I'm the one that discerns good and evil, not God, not the Creator. And so we have to overcome idolatry overall. I think all of it, all sin really amounts to idolatry because you're either choosing someone over God or I'm choosing me over God. My own wits, my own wisdom. And that will only result in destruction. Not only that, but I think we must become a suffering servant like Jesus. Over in Hebrews chapter 12 and verse 1. It says, therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. We already discussed in the, in the adult Bible class, Jesus did not want the cross. It was an evil thing. What happened on that day at the crucifixion of Jesus was the darkest day in history. It was sinful. It was utterly long, wrong. Jesus didn't want that. He didn't want sin. But what did he want? To do the will of the Father. He wanted to endure the cross. He didn't want the cross, but he did want to endure it. Why? For God. For the joy set before him. For the joy and, and, and will of his Father. He endured the cross so that he could get to God's goal. Not to the devil's, not to anyone else's, not, not my own, to God's goal. And we have to have the same kind of resolve. Am I willing to suffer for God's goal? Am I willing to suffer for his will like Jesus? Am I willing to spend less time at the sports field and more time at gospel meetings for my family? Am I willing to maybe suffer some of the consequences that will come? Yeah. Why, why do we have to do this? I, I, we need to go to the game. I'm supposed to, I'm obligated to these team members. No, no, we're going. We're going to the gospel meeting. Am I willing to suffer less friends or maybe less popularity to keep God's priority? Because man has all kinds of other priorities. They don't care about God's. They don't care about God's standard. 
Am I willing to suffer the consequences, the persecution, great or small? It can just be, what a freak. It could just be, you're such a prude. I guess you can say so. (laughs) I care more about what God has to say about me, not man. Am I willing to suffer staying away from the forbidden? I do think that that was one of the temptations Eve suffered with the most. This was something that was prohibited. And whenever something's prohibited, what do we tend to do? We tend to take a look and linger. I wonder what's in the box. I want to open it. Isn't that what happens every Christmas? You tell your kids not to go into a closet because that's where you keep all the gifts. And then what happens? Hey, the door's open. Because it's forbidden. It, I really want to know. I just want to know what it tastes like. I want to know what it feels like. This is, this is why how countless people have become addicts of alcohol and drugs and pornography. Not because there was this, this deep desire for the lust of the flesh. Not because there was this deep desire embedded in themselves that God created in them so that they would sin. It's because I just want to know what it feels like. I want to know what, it, what, it, it, what the experience is like. And so they take that first sip. They take that first shot. And I remember one, there was a Bible class that, that I was in. J.R. Bronger was actually teaching it when I was at Danville, Indiana. And it was a high school Bible class. And we were just talking about, you know, sins that people engage in, and particularly the younger generations. And why we do. And it was kind of a, a like this point. And one of the things he said was, guys, I did not have the same blessings that you did growing up, going to services, praising God, having godly parents. I didn't have those blessings. If you don't think they are, don't be foolish. Don't look over at what everyone else is doing, what all your friends are doing, and think, I want some of that. Because I promise you, I've tasted those waters, and they are bitter, and they are poison. Sometimes I think what we need is maybe someone to, who, who does have the knowledge and the wisdom to tell us, to point and say, I promise you it's not worth it. The problem is we do. We have God telling us. We have Solomon telling us in Ecclesiastes, don't go down this path because it's not, it only leads to a dead end. So are we going to suffer for, for God and to suffer through the cross as we pick up our own to get to his conclusion? Well, finally... We need to make sure that, like Jesus, we don't entertain sin. Jesus not one time entertained the wiles of Satan. Yes, he struggled physically with hunger, with thirst. He struggled physically for health. Forty days and nights in the wilderness, that would be quite a toll on the, on the human body, on the frailties of the human body. Now, we need to, like Jesus, look past those worldly appeals, even though in the moment they looked so good. And this is not to say that he never felt fatigue or sadness like us just because he was the perfect uh, high priest that never did sin. He obviously never sinned, but don't, don't think that that means Jesus didn't, didn't suffer temptation like we did. What, what it does mean is that he never considered taking another route. While he was tempted, he never for one second entertained the thought, I think I am going to go against God. No, the will of his father, that was his food and drink. That was his sustenance, as it says in John 4 and verse 34. Am I the same? Are you the same? Jesus said, go, Satan, emphatically. And he went. Are you willing to do the same? Are you willing to be that resolved in your relationship with God and in our path towards heaven? Because if we're not, we will fall off. We will step into that chasm of destruction and death, the broad gate of death. 
So if you're a Christian, maybe you have not been as emphatic as you should be, as dogmatic in your life when it comes to sin, when it comes to these temptations that the, the devil is trying to get us to engage in. Understand if you haven't been that emphatic as Jesus, you haven't told Satan, go, you're not welcome here. You are entertaining temptation. Just because he lingers, maybe you haven't fully engaged like everybody else. Guess what? You've already lost the battle because you've allowed this to play over and over in your mind. You've allowed this to stay in your home. And God says that that's not enough. So say today, go and follow Jesus' example and truly root out every bit of sin in your life and you have Christ as the advocate in heaven that, that as we repent and we ask forgiveness from him, we can have it this very day. If, if, that, if that describes you, the person that has not rooted sin out completely, don't leave this building without being assured. And that leads me to the invitation that if you're not a Christian, there is no assurance. There is no confidence. You can say, go Satan all you want. Guess what? He still has you. You are still in his grips. You are still held captive. You have to be willing to not just say, go Satan, but you have to be willing to do what Jesus tells you to do so that way he can no longer have any power over you. Are you willing to make the kind of confession that Jesus did? Emphatic confession. Are you, are you willing to hear everything that Jesus has, has for us to do? All the commandments, all of the prohibitions. Are you willing to t hear that and take it? Willing to be faithful in those? Repent of the things? That means turn from them, cease from those things? And make a strong confession in his name based on those beliefs. Be baptized into his death and newness of life that we can have his life. If you're subject to the invitation of Christ by any means, please come forward as we stand and as we sing.